0: Well hello and welcome back to the Vineyard Church Podcast. Today we wrap up our series in Genesis called In the Beginning with Chapter 50. As Chris walks us through the end of Jacob's story, he helps us see that when we understand our backstory, we can live our best story. Here's Chris. Well, hello and good morning. Good to see you all. We are going to, believe it or not, wrap up Genesis. Uh, It has been an amazing journey with the beginning of this 14 months ago. uh, You know, the question was, why are we studying Genesis? Well, we could say, well, it's in the Bible. uh, And so that's kind of important. Uh, But really, it's about our, our backstory, our origin story. And until you know your backstory, you can't live your best story. Uh, You have to have context to live this life well. And Genesis really does provide that for us. And so today, we're going to finish it up in chapter 50. If you have a Bible, open up to Genesis 50. Genesis is the first book in the Bible. If you're joining us for the first time, that's where it is, all the way in the front of the book, chapter 50. Uh, And so we'll get there in a second. Now, as far as this chapter is concerned, this is not one of those stories where at the end of the last chapter, there's a plot twist and you're like, "Oh my gosh, I didn't see that coming." Uh, it just kind of gives us some stories end that way. Some stories just end with, and then there was this and then there was this, and then there was this, the end. And that's kind of how this ends. And I want to unpack what we can learn from that, but what I really want to do is put a bow on the whole series, kind of what are the big things that we walk away with from this, this book? It's been a, quite an adventure along the way. The feedback has been been phenomenal. I've learned a ton. I think you guys have learned a ton as well. It's amazing when we open God's Word and start just asking God, what are you saying to us? How much he speaks through his Word. So anyway, um, the book of Genesis was written uh, 400 years after the last event recorded in the book of Genesis, did you know that? It wasn't written down until 400 years later, and it was written for a very specific reason to a very specific people. Now, I know one of the questions you're asking is then, how do we know that the events recorded there are accurate? They had something called oral tradition. And so they would remember and memorize these stories and pass them on to their kids and pass them on to their kids and pass them on to their kids. And they would tell them around the fire, around the kitchen table over and over again. And so is oral tradition surprisingly accurate? And so um, this guy Moses sits down 400 years later to write this book. Why? Why? Well, it's a long story, so if you turn to the next book in your Bible, I'm not asking you to do that. Actually, I will ask you to do that as we leave Genesis. If you want to continue with this story, the next book is Exodus, and I would encourage you to study that on your own, just to to read through Exodus on your own, in your own quiet time. Um, But what you'll see in the next chapter, in the first chapter in Exodus, is that after Joseph dies... The next pharaoh doesn't know really a whole lot about Joseph or his people. He just knows there's this big group of people off in this this land called Goshen, which is part of Egypt, that are growing and growing and multiplying and multiplying. And he becomes intimidated by them and is afraid they're going going to revolt. And so he puts them into slavery. And they're in slavery for 400 years. But then uh, by the time uh, we get to 400 years later they are killing all the male babies because they don't want an army rising up from among the Israelites and, and they are oppressing them in slavery. And so uh, this uh, baby's born, his name's Moses. He's supposed to be killed. His parents hide him. And, um, and they hide him as long as they can. And then in desperation, they put him in a basket and stick him in the river and just hope somebody will find him. Well, just so happens he bumps into, as a little baby in the basket, bumps into the uh, princess of Egypt and the Pharaoh's daughter, and she sees a baby and just falls in love with him and takes him home and adopts him and raises, her, raises him as her own. Well, Moses eventually realizes, hey, I'm not Egyptian. I'm an Israelite. And God, and this is a long, complicated story, and this is why you need to go read Exodus, he ends up leading them out of slavery and back to the promised land. So they've been in slavery for 400 years. So they, they need to understand who they are, whose they are, where they come from. They need to know their backstory so they can live their best story. They need to know the context in which they're living uh, or it, life doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. So Moses sits down and writes the book of Genesis to give them that context. He also writes, he writes four other books. These are the first five books of our Bible. The Jewish people call them the Pentateuch, the law, the law of Moses. Uh, It would be called all of those things. All right, this is, um, and so he writes these books to give them this context, the first book, Genesis, giving them their backstory. And then the other books give them law and history and, and all those things. And this is super important, super important. Like you have to know your history. As Americans, we have to know our history, our American history, because if you disconnect people from their history, you can lead them anywhere. The first thing the communist revolutions do is erase history. If you study Mao uh, in the communist revolution in China in the 1950s, first thing they did was they erased the history, like disconnect from the past, pull down all the statues and monuments, and rewrite the history. Because once you're disconnected from your history, you can be led anywhere. We see the same thing in the French Revolution, which wasn't called a communist b- revolution, but had similar, similar uh, ideologies. You know, they, in the French Revolution, they wanted to reset the calendar to year zero, because if you can disconnect from your, your past, you can be led anywhere. And so Moses gives them this context. They need to know where they come from. They need to know why they are in the mess that they're in. They need to know what God has promised them. They need to know who God is. It's why Moses starts off with, in the beginning, God created. They need to know who their God is, that he's different than the other gods around them. And this isn't just important for them. This is just as important for us. This is our backstory as well. We need to understand why we're in the mess we're in, the impact that sin has had on our world and on our lives, and we need to know who God is and what he's done for us. So with that in mind, let's wrap up. I'm going to do two things. We're going to read through chapter 50. I'm going to pull a few things out. And then I'm going to, at the end, give you five things that we can can learn from the totality of Genesis, that if you can get through your head and into your heart, will change the way that you live. Are you ready? Chapter 50. Let's read it together. Joseph threw himself on his father and wept over him and kissed him. Jacob... Also known as Israel just died Joseph is mourning his father then Joseph directed the physicians in his service to embalm his father Israel so the physicians embalmed him taking a full 40 days for that was the time required for embalming so when we think of <clears throat> when we think of Egyptians, we think of King Tut and the pharaohs and that whole balmy, like we're finding these people who have been embalmed in this era today and they're still preserved. Well, it's the, the height of technology in the world at the time. And this is what uh, Joseph has done for his father. Israel and the Egyptians, this is a powerful statement, and the Egyptians mourned for him for 70 days. Now, one of the things we established earlier on in this this book is that the Egyptians kind of despised farmers. They didn't like the herdsmen, right? And so this is why they, they end up in this region called Goshen, because they're separate and apart from Egyptian society and culture. Yet... They mourn for Jacob, the whole country mourns for Jacob, for 70 days. Like, they loved this guy. They didn't like him, like, or, or they were separate from him because he was different, because they were unassimilated, because they weren't like them, and yet there's this reverence and respect and awe for Jacob. It, it, it's It's strange. In verse 4, it goes on. It says, When the days of mourning had passed, Joseph said to Pharaoh's court, If I have found favor in your eyes, speak to Pharaoh for me. Tell him, My father made me swear an oath and said, I'm about to die. Bury me in the tomb I dug for myself in the land of Canaan. Now let me go up and bury my father, and then I will return. So Jacob made Joseph swear to take his, bone, his bones back to, to uh, the promised land Abraham had purchased a little plot of land. It's the only thing their family owns in the promised land, is this little plot of land with a tomb in it. He's like, take me back there and bury me. And he has to get permission to leave because this is a 15-day journey one way. He gets and so they go to Pharaoh and they ask permission. And Pharaoh says, Go up and bury your father as he made you swear to do. Pharaoh loves this family. The Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world, loves Joseph. He loves his family. Anything they've asked for, it has been yes, absolutely, whatever you need over and above, I want to be a blessing to you, Joseph, because Joseph and his family was a blessing to the Pharaoh. So Joseph went up to bury his father. Now, this is fascinating. All Pharaoh's officials accompanied him, the dignitaries of his court and all the dignitaries of Egypt. So Joseph, this isn't just a family trip to go bury dad back home in the homeland. All the Pharaoh's officials and the Pharaoh's court goes with him. 15-day journey one way. So between going there, coming back, and the time they spend in the promised land, this is probably somewhere between a 35, no, it's more than 35, 37 to 45-day journey. All of Egypt stops. They've already mourned him for 70 days, and now for another 45 days, they travel back to to the land of Canaan and celebrate this guy's life, honor him, bury him, the court uh, of Pharaoh, along with a military escort says, beside all the members of Joseph's household and his brothers and those belonging to his father's household, only their children and their flocks and herds were left in Goshen back in Egypt. And the, the Pharaoh also sent chariots and horsemen, and they went up with him as well. It was a very large company. What is going on here? This, is, this, this seems disproportionate for a group of people that the Egyptians don't, aren't supposed to like, right? goes on, when they reached the threshing floor of of Atad near the Jordan, they lamented loudly and bitterly. And there Joseph observed a seven-day period of mourning for his father when the Canaanites who lived there, so they got this big entourage of Egyptians and then Joseph's family, and they're mourning loudly and bitterly at this, at this place. When the Canaanites who lived there saw the mourning at the threshing floor of Atad, they said, the Egyptians are holding a solemn ceremony of mourning. And that is why that place near the Jordan is called Abel Mizoram, which means the Egyptians mourned. Like they renamed the place it was that significant of an event. So Jacob's sons did as he commanded them. They carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave in the field of Pella near Mamre, which Abraham had bought along with the field as a burial place from Ephraim the Hittite. After burying his father, Joseph returned to Egypt together with his brothers and all the others who had gone with him to bury his father. This is over a hundred days of mourning for Jacob. And the Egyptians joined in. And the Egyptians joined in Authentically, it wasn't like you got to go do this. They they truly loved this this guy, and I think this is such a picture of what our lives are supposed to look like. Right? Jacob and his family do not assimilate into Egyptian culture, they do not become Egyptians. They remain distinctively themselves. They They are different, and yet they are loved. They are different, and yet. When, when somebody passes away, when Jacob passes away, all the people who are different show up and go, wow, what a life. What a life. It's amazing. And then they all return. Of course they do. They've got a great life back in Egypt, and so they all return, and Joseph's still the prime minister, so they return. Then his brothers come to him. With an interesting request this is when joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead they said what if joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him remember they sold him into slavery they had not treated him well now he said that he had forgiven them all the way back in chapter 45 he'd forgiven them they've been living like things are good between them they have this authentic relationship at least joseph thought they did But this whole time, they've been living secretly thinking, well, maybe maybe he hasn't forgiven us. Maybe he's just being nice to us for dad's sake. So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now, please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. And when their message came to him, Joseph wept. See, Joseph, more than anything else, wanted to have an authentic family relationship with his brothers and, and, and most likely thought that they had an authentic family. For all these years, they've been there years and years and years. He'd forgiven them 20 years ago. He told them so much. They didn't believe him. And so they've been faking it for 20 years. And, and, and mostly, most theologians and historians think they just made up this story about Jacob, said, hey, please forgive your brothers, to try and get him to forgive. But, but, but they just, you know, because they just don't want the retribution. And it says Joseph wept. You know why Joseph wept? Because what he wanted was an authentic, and what he thought he had was an authentic relationship with his brothers, and he found out they'd been faking it the whole time. That they've been questioning whether he has been forthright and honest with them the whole time. That's not a good relationship when you're living, when you got that going on. And it broke his heart. Now, I think there is a parallel here to our relationship with God. You know, more than anything else in this world, what God wants with you is a relationship, an authentic, loving relationship. It's built on forgiveness. And yet, how often do we start questioning whether God really could forgive us, really has forgiven us? I mean, usually it's when we stumble, you know, and we, we kind of get stuck in, and, and, and we sin, and we're like, I'm sorry, and we do it again, and I'm sorry, and they're like, oh, well, God, do you really forgive me? Or when life is hard and things aren't going our way, like, well, okay, so what have I done wrong? I'm going to game the system. I'm going to do some kind of religious thing. God, would you, I'll do this and this, and I'll read my Bible more, and then you'll forgive me. And God's like, I forgave you back in chapter 45. Like, this relationship, you don't have to, you don't have to make up a story. You don't have to do all this. Like, it's forgiven. You know, when Jesus... When Jesus came, he came because the wages of sin is death. And he died on the cross to pay for what we did wrong so that it could be forgiven, so we could have this unbroken, beautiful, authentic relationship with God, which is what he wants more than anything else. And as he was hanging on the cross, his very last words before he took his last breath were what? It is finished. Translates It is paid in full. The penalty for sin is paid in full. It is forgiven. And then we, like Joseph's brothers, go around going, well, is it really? I don't know. And we doubt and we question, and I think it breaks God's heart as much as this broke Joseph's heart. And the enemy loves to get in there and get us questioning. And he accuses us, well, God couldn't love you. God doesn't forgive you. He he forgave you, but he's not going to forgive you this time. embrace the forgiveness that God has given you and live in that authentic relationship. Well, in verse 18, it goes on, his brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We're your slaves, they said. They were really concerned. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? Joseph understood it wasn't his to judge. It wasn't his to condemn, and it wasn't his to seek justice on his brothers. God would take care of that. And his forgiveness was... True and real. He says, You intended me harm, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. does his best to patch up this family and this relationship and assuage the fear because great relationships aren't built on fear. They're built on forgiveness. And then... Joseph dies. In verse 22, it says Joseph stayed in Egypt along with all his father's family. He lived 110 years, and he saw the third generation of Ephraim's children, also the children of Makir, son of Manasseh, were placed at birth on Joseph's knees. So he gets to see his great-grandchildren. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land to the land he promised on oath to Abraham. Isaac and Jacob. And Joseph made the Israelites swear an oath and said, God will surely come to your aid. And then you must carry my bones up from this place. So Joseph died at the age of 110. And after they embalmed him, probably for another 70 days or 40 days or whatever it was, he was placed in a coffin and they stuck him in the corner. They never buried him. Because eventually when they go back to the promised land, they need to take him with them. And they they ultimately do. Four hundred years later. Can you imagine? I mean, clutter, you know, 400. What's this box in the corner? Anyway, my wife would have thrown that away years ago. So, so what have we learned? What have we learned? What, what, what are the lessons of Genesis? Guys, this is so rich and so good. Um, well, we learned that, what we just went over. But, but five things that if you can get through your head and into your heart will change the way that you live. Are you ready? Write these down. This is so important. The first thing is this. Our God is the creator and the designer of the universe. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The furthest thing that we can see through the most powerful telescope, God created that. He put it there, he balanced it so that it all works together and it is sustained down to the smallest particles that we can see through an electron microscope and smaller than that, God designed all that. He balanced it so that a cell works, so that an atom works all the way up to our planet being perfectly uh, positioned in the solar system and in the universe such that it is the perfect distance from the sun so that the temperature is just right to sustain life, that the angle of the earth is just so, so that this planet can sustain life and and go through the cycles that it goes through to do that, that we have a moon just the right distance from our planet that, that brings about, again, cycles and tides and everything, so that this thing... Is sustainable. It's all put together better and more precisely than any watch or clock you could any man has ever designed. He's a creator. He is the all-powerful God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The gods, he, the people of Israel needed to understand that their God was different than all the quote-unquote gods that they were surrounded by. The, f- the family gods of the, the Canaanites, the regional gods, they were all carved or, 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 or cast images. They worshipped things, and many of them had demonic inspirations behind them, but they weren't all powerful. They were, they were little gods. But the Israelites' God, he created everything. That was different. Nobody, nobody had that. He was all powerful powerful and when you understand that you live differently when you understand that that god is god and you're not that he is all powerful now our gods are a little bit different than their gods were right like we worship money and power and prestige and pleasure and fame, or, or we create a God of our own liking, like we grab a couple things that we learned in church, and then, of course, some things that we learned on Google, and then whatever we like, and we put it together, and that's my God, that's our idol. No, this is the God, the one who made all of it, who is all-powerful. And when you understand that he is all-powerful, you live different. In Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10, it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now, this is not a fear like you would be afraid of, a, of an erratic you know, father who was, had an addiction and just flew off the handle all the time. Not that kind of fear, but a reverence and awe. Uh, oh, you are God and I am not, and I'm going to live in light of that. That is the beginning of wisdom. They needed to understand that, and so do we. Because when you understand the vast power and the creative ability of God, it changes how you interact with him. It changes the reverence that you have towards him. It builds humility into our lives. You're God, I'm not. You see the beginning from the end. I don't. You know, I don't know. You're the potter. I'm the clay. I want what you want more than I want what I want because what I want is just one step down the road. What you want is my blessing 10, 20, 30 steps down the road. You know the way to get to where I'm going. I just know the way to get to the next step. See, when you serve that God... It changes how you live. The who of Genesis is the defining context of how we live this life. And that was important for them, and it is important for us. Number two, sin. Sin is the root of suffering. Sin is the root of suffering. In Genesis 3, we see Adam and Eve choose to disobey God. To allow sin into our world. And from that point on, all the way up to Noah, we watch the, the world devolve into violence and chaos and abuse. And it's just horrific. It's just horrific. And then from Noah just on to, to Abraham, we see the same thing. We just see this, this devolution of society that brings pain and war and violence. And abuse, selfishness, sin is the root of suffering. And when I choose sin, I choose suffering. And that can be as a culture, and it certainly applies as to us as individuals. When we choose to sin, we choose the suffering that comes along with it. Now, here's the thing about sin. It can look really attractive, can it? Like again, because we're only looking one step down, we're like, "Well, that looks I don't want that." You know we kind of get enamored with it. One of the great theological movies of our day, "A Bug's Life," maybe you've seen it. Um, there's an ant who's the, the hero of the story and he's getting ready to walk into the equivalent of what would be Las Vegas in ant world and uh, and outside there's a it's like this trailer and well I'll just show you the clip go ahead and take a look. Best illustration of sin I've ever seen. That's it. <laughs> hey. It's so beautiful. <laughs> you know. Sin is the root of suffering. Now, here's the problem. It doesn't always give us instantaneous feedback like that. It does. Sometimes it does. Sometimes it does. Sometimes it's like, it's so beautiful, and you're, and you're just like, okay, I'm never going to do that again. I call that the, the hot stove principle, right? You touch a hot stove, you'll never touch a hot stove again. A few years ago, my son Deuce was up visiting his grandparents, and they had one of those electric stoves with the, the coil, you know, it gets, glows red, you know what I'm talking about? And, um, and they had been cooking on it, and it was, they had turned it off, and it was no longer red, and, uh, but it was still hot. Deuce put his hand down on the, on the coil. Of course, he had a tattoo of a stove coil for the rest of the summer on the back of his hand. Uh, he lifts his hand away. He's never done that since. I mean, that was an instantaneous feedback, hot stove principle. Sometimes it happens that way. But more often than not, it's what I call the radioactive principle. Like if I were to drop you down in Chernobyl right now, you'd be like, that doesn't look so bad and the property's cheap. Yeah, there's not a lot of people. I like it here. I think I'm gonna stay. And you might pull that off for a year, but what's happening? You're cooking your insides with radiation. It's a bad idea. And that's how sin works so often. It's like, well, I didn't I didn't experience a you know, I, I thought I, I thought I would die, but you know, it's not too bad. I like it. It's kind of fun. Property's cheap. It's good. I'm going to stay. Because I think this is, it's, it's delayed, the delayed suffering that comes from choosing sin, choosing to disobey God. This is why teenagers think they're inv- invincible and their moms and dads are idiots. Right? I remember when my kids were, were small and, and the D.A.R.E. program came in and they're like, if you smoke cigarettes, you'll die. I'm like, don't tell them that because they're going to smoke cigarettes. Well, hopefully they won't, but you know, if they do eventually smoke a cigarette, I didn't die. They were lying to me the whole time. I can do, you know, well, in 15 years, you're going to have COPD and lung cancer. So that's a bad idea. It's a delayed death. Or don't ever use drugs or you'll die. Well, I use drugs. Josie Deuce, do not use drugs or you will die. But anyway. I got away with it. It's kind of fun. Whatever. What they don't understand is that in a year or two or three or whatever, the, the drugs will control them, that they will, they will end up being slave to something outside of them that controls them, and it ultimately will steal from them everything that, they, that is true and right and, and beautiful in this life. But it's that delayed sin. See, at the heart of sin is suffering. We get away with it for a little while. You know, we... How often does somebody choose to have an affair? Oh, I got away with it. You get away with it for a while, but your sin will eventually find you out. And what is happening in the meantime that you might not even be aware of? The quality of your relationships is diminishing. The trust, the intimacy with your kids, with your spouse. You're not going to get away with it forever. It will ultimately rip your family apart. It might be fun for a while. Cheating on your taxes. The IRS will eventually find you out. Right? And you're living as a cheater or a liar. Now, here's the deal. We don't make, a good parent doesn't make arbitrary rules for their kids. You know, a good parent doesn't go around, I love being in control and I love rules, so I'm going to make all kinds of rules everywhere because they need to know that I'm in charge. That's not good parenting, just so you know. Good parenting is, here are the rules because i know because i've lived 20 or 30 years longer than you have that on the other side of this decision is pain and my goal is to keep you from experiencing that if i can right it's it's out of love it's out of protection it's i've lived longer than you have i have a bigger perspective than you do we make that god's the same way god gives us these guardrails for life for our benefit to keep us from experiencing this unnecessary pain and ripping our families apart or ripping our lives apart. Sin is the root of suffering. And the inverse of that is point number three, which is this. Obedience is the pathway to blessing. And we see this in Genesis as well. And sometimes it's a delayed blessing, though. That's, the, that's where we get hung up, right? We want to see the immediate effect but sometimes it's, sometimes it's going to be a while until we see that, that blessing. But ultimately, that is where blessing comes. And it requires faith to walk that path. And you live long enough and you will see that it's true. Now, sometimes doing the right thing looks like it will make things worse. Anybody ever been there? I have to tell the truth in this situation and it's going to cost me. But ultimately, down the road, it's going to bless you. And you need to walk through whatever that cost is to get to the ultimate blessing, the bigger blessing that God has for you. So it might cost you for a time, but ultimately obeying God brings blessing. His commands are for our good and for our best. And Genesis shows us this principle loud and clear. God shows up to a guy named Abram. Abram means father. says, I'm going to bless you and you're going to be a great nation changes his name to Abraham. So he goes from father to father of nations, which is what Abraham means, and he has no kids. It's another 40 years until he has Isaac. Delay, delayed blessing. And he never, it's another five or 600 years until the children of Israel come out of Egypt as a nation. He never gets to see it in this side of heaven. But I think the most clear example of this is Joseph. Joseph chooses to obey God every step of the way. He chooses to forgive his brothers, he chooses to, he chooses to bloom where he's planted, to trust God even in the midst of his suffering. All the way along, so he's, he's betrayed by his brothers, he's sold into slavery, he's falsely accused of raping a woman that he didn't rape. He's thrown into prison, he languishes there uh, for 10 years. Then he thinks he's gonna get out because these things came together and it's like, oh, I see what God's up to and then he spends another couple years there. And at every point along the way, he chooses to, to bloom where he's planted. He chooses to not harbor bitterness but to offer forgiveness. And at the end of that period of time, he wakes up one day and he's the prime minister. You gotta go back and listen to the series if you wanna know how all that happened. But he's the prime minister of of the country. And that period of suffering, 12 years, was probably the fastest way from where he was to where God needed him to be. And it prepared his character, it prepared him for who he was going to be and who he needed to be to accomplish what God was going to accomplish, which was saving the people of that region and most importantly, saving his family and the promise of God. We never would have seen Jesus had it not been for Joseph in that day. So obedience is the pathway to blessing. Number four, there are many things that you won't understand until the story is over. There are many things you're just not going to understand. You know, when we die, I hope you have a list of questions you're going to ask God about. Because we don't get them all answered in this life. And and, and there are going to be many things that you won't understand until you get to the other side of the story. Anybody see the sixth sense, the movie The Sixth Sense? All right, if you haven't, I'm not going to be a spoiler for you. I just say, you get to the end of the movie and you're like, oh my gosh, I never saw that coming. Like, it's like, oh, and you start putting the pieces together, but you would have never seen it had you not known. Again, Joseph didn't understand what God was up to when he was in prison. He didn't understand what God was up to when his brothers betrayed him. He didn't understand what he was, God was up to when he was accused. He didn't understand what, he was up to, what God was up to when he was in slavery. And in fact, I don't think Joseph even understood what God was up to when he became the prime minister. I think it was the day his brothers showed up. He was like, oh, I never saw this coming. And that's life, guys. That's how life works. And we can live in faithfulness and obedience, trusting that God is writing our story. And even if it, in the moment it doesn't look like it's going the way I want it to go, that he's going to get me to where I need to be. And that he's accomplishing things in the midst of the hard parts of life. And I'm just not going to be able to quite see what he's up to till we get to the other side of the story. Such an important lesson. So much of life falls into this category. So much of faithfulness falls into this category. That's why we say walk by faith, not by sight, because this is how life works. One of our memory verses in this series was Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Trust him and lean not on your own understanding, because you only see one step in front. You don't see the end of the story. You don't know what God is up to in the midst of either the good times or the suffering times that you're going through. And then in verse six, it says, in all your ways, submit to him. In all your ways, obey him. In all your ways, do what he says, because he's looking out for your best interest. He knows the fastest way from where you are to where you're going. And he's writing your story. Trust that he is, in all your ways, Obey him, submit to him, surrender to him, and he will make your paths straight. I'm sure Joseph didn't get it perfect, and neither will you, but I think Joseph got it really good. He did really well on the journey, and his, his, you know, his path from where he was to where God needed him to be was pretty short. Now, by our, our standards, 12 years isn't short, but it was short compared to everything else we're seeing in this story. There are many things that you won't understand until the story is over, and we need to get okay with that. That's part of the context of Genesis that helps us live our best life now. Number five, last one. The real hero of Genesis is Jesus. You're like, wait, ah, what do you mean? They never mentioned Jesus in Genesis, all through Genesis. Actually, all through the whole Old Testament. You know, oftentimes people are like, I like the God of the New Testament. I'm not such a big fan of the Old Testament. Why do I even need to read the Old Testament? It's hard. I'm just going to read the New Testament. I'll just read the Gospels or what? No, 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 no. The whole Old Testament and the book of Genesis at all points to Jesus is so important. In 2023, we can look back and see this. Again, we live on the other side, and in part, on the other side of part of this story. And so we have the, the beauty of hindsight. We can look back and go, oh, there he is. There he is. It's fascinating. Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, it says As God was creating the heavens and the earth. It says the Spirit of God is hovering over the waters. Now this is interesting because the Jewish people are fiercely monotheistic, which means one God. There's one God. And yet we've got God and then we've got the Spirit of God hovering over the waters. And then in verse 26 of chapter 1, God says to himself, let us make man in our image. What is that? I mean, the, one of the things that Moses was trying to communicate and God through Moses is there's one God. And yet we see this reference to God being multifaceted. We call it the Trinity today. You know, the Father the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Spirit's hovering over the water, the the Father, Creator, and Jesus, the Son. And it points forward to Jesus. In Genesis chapter 3, after the fall, and man had sinned, God comes and he's cursing the serpent and the devil, and it says, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. I love how it goes from you know offspring in general to he he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. It's talking about one specific offspring. This is a prof- a prophetic word pointing forward to Jesus in the cross where the enemy will strike his seal, will, where he will think he won, he poisoned him, he ended it all with killing Jesus. And yet, on, he didn't know Easter was coming. He didn't know Sunday was coming, that ultimately with the resurrection, Jesus would crush the power of the enemy. In Je- Genesis chapter 12, God shows up to Abraham and says, look, I'm going to bless you so you can be a blessing. And all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. And he's pointing forward to his rescue plan, to his Messiah, to the one who would come through the line of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, ultimately Judah, who would rescue the world. In chapter 49, Jacob is pronouncing a blessing over his sons and he gets to Judah and he says this, the scepter will not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. Again, pointing forward to to a ruler who will come, who will be an eternal ruler. Again, pointing forward to that Messiah who will come down in the line and family of Judah, a great king. That's Jesus. Jesus is the hero. Genesis gave them context that there was a rescuer who was coming, and it kept pointing forward and pointing forward and pointing forward, but it gives us context. As, as we look back, it's our origin story, and like I said, when you understand your backstory or your origin story, you can live your best story now. After Jesus was crucified... And rose from the dead there were rumors going around that he had risen from the dead and the disciples are confused and his followers are trying to figure out what's going on and there's a couple of his followers walking from jerusalem back to their their home in emmaus and as they're walking along they're having this conversation and they're asking all the all the right questions all the questions we would be asking if we were in their shoes why did this happen as people were saying that he, he rose from the dead but I don't even know if that's true, but we thought he was the Messiah. We thought he was the one, and then they did what they did to him. They tortured him. They killed him. They crucified him. How can any of this be? And Jesus shows up, starts walking with them, but he doesn't allow them to recognize him. And then Jesus starts answering their questions in Luke 24, 26. He says this, did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory. And beginning with Moses, that would be the the Pentateuch, those first five books, the law, and all the prophets, that's the rest of our Old Testament, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. It all points forward to him. You know, there are over 300 prophecies throughout the Old Testament about very specific things about Jesus and his life, or the Messiah and his life, including his suffering. In his death, and his resurrection. Jesus fulfilled them all. Statistically impossible thing to do. The whole thing points to him. Jesus, in correcting the religious leaders, they knew the Bible better than anybody else. They read their Bible every day. They were super good religious people. Jesus says this. He says, you study the scriptures diligently because you think in them you have eternal life. He said, but these are the very scriptures that testify about me. Jesus is the hero of Genesis. He's the hero of the Old Testament. At one point, they're accusing him of being a little loose with the rules. You're you're abolishing the law. He says this in Matthew 5, 17. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to do what? Fulfill them. So as we read through the book of Genesis and as you read through the rest of the Old Testament, it all, Jesus is all over the pages. And we have the, the advantage of living post to Jesus. So we don't know everything, but we know these things. We're on the other side of that particular story God gives the Israelites a sacrificial system because the wages of sin, the payment for sin is death. And he says, look, you can have an animal sacrificed to cover your sin. It wasn't, it didn't pay for sin entirely. It was an interest only payment, kind of pushed it down the road. And then Jesus shows up as the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. When he says, it is finished It is paid in full. It is no longer just an interest-only payment. Sin is paid for. And even that sacrificial system pointed forward to Jesus on the cross once for all. Genesis points to this deliverer who would come, and they had to choose to trust God for the one who would come. We have to choose to believe God for the one who has come. And done what he said he would do. And after 47 weeks in Genesis, we've learned so much about our context, about our backstory. But most profoundly, we find Jesus here. We find it pointing prophetically in a way that couldn't have been orchestrated by man, pointing to Jesus Christ, God's plan of rescue for every single one of us. And it's a rescue that every single one of us has access to today if we'll choose it. Like Jacob or like Joseph's brothers, or like Joseph, I guess, God wants more than anything else a relationship with you. Not not one built on religion and posturing and oh, we'll do this, and but built on forgiveness and love and trust authentic we're not pretending it's what you were made for and when we turn around from the direction that we're going walking away from God and start walking towards God that's called repentance and we say God I want you I want I want to live for the big picture and you know what that is I want what you want more than I want what I want when we turn around and do that God says that Jesus's payment on the cross is applied to our lives everything is forgiven You can go to the bank on that one. It's all forgiven. He comes and lives in our lives by his Holy Spirit. He adopts us into his family, and he begins to change us from the inside out. And he empowers us to live the best life possible in this life and in the one to come. And so as we wrap up Genesis today, I want to give you an opportunity to embrace that relationship if you've not. Because God's just waiting for you to come home. Let's close our eyes, bow our heads. Jesus says if we put our faith in him, and I want to encourage you to do that, and you're like, well, what is faith? I mean, that seems kind of abstract. This is how you put your faith in God. You trust him enough to do what he says. Say, I'm going to follow you. I'm in with you. He gets to be in charge. And so just in the quiet of your, your heart, I want to encourage you to have a conversation with him right now. Just say something along these lines. The words aren't important. It's the heart of it that's important. But something along the lines of, God, I want what you want more than I want what I want. I have found that sin is the root of suffering, and I don't want to do that anymore. I choose now to turn around and come home will you forgive me will you come and live in my heart will you adopt me into your family will you change my life forever Now, Holy Spirit, I just pray that you would just just wash over us. God, as as there are some who have chosen you for the first time today and others of us who are coming home again, Lord, just re-realizing the fact that we live in the context of a much bigger story and you've got the best path. Meet us, Lord. Thanks for joining us on the Vineyard Church Podcast today. It's our greatest desire for people to find and follow God, and we hope this podcast is one way that helps you do just that. But don't stop here. We would love to see you face-to-face. God's people grow most in community, so don't forget you can join us live at the Capitol Theater in downtown Wheeling every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. If you'd like to connect with us in the meantime, make sure to visit our website, vineyardwheeling.com, or download our app. You can catch up on previous messages and series, request prayer, and even download additional content. Thanks again for joining us this week. We'll see you next time.